welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Mary Manzavin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hey, Dan. Hi, Miriam. It is a whiny 30 days on the Jewish calendar, but not in the way anti-Semites think. Mm-mm. At Purim, we are commanded to get so hammered that we can't tell the difference between ultra-villain Haman and Jewish legend Mordechai. About a month later, we're back at it on Passover with an ancient text commanding us, basically, to get shit-faced and then lean on a pillow at the dinner table with all of our relatives watching. If you grew up in some Jewish communities, you might have heard from an older relative, Jews don't really drink. And for me, that's really true because I'm an extreme lightweight. I look at a glass of sangria and I immediately need to take a nap. On Passover, we're commanded to drink four whole cups of wine. There are many reasons for this, including that the four cups are supposed to represent four different stages of redemption from slavery. So pardon the rant, Miriam, but usually we ask four questions on Passover, and I've got a fifth. On all other nights, those who partake in such things drink wine that we actually like. Why is it that on Passover, when we're supposed to celebrate freedom of all things, do we drink a sugary concoction that tastes more like Caesarp blended with a Tide Pod than an actual grape? One that sat in your great aunt's liquor cabinet for a year since the last time someone dared to uncork. Oh, wait, I mean, unscrew that rot gut. Well, Dan, how do you really feel? <laughs> We're here to say this holiday is an opportunity, a chance to take advantage of the second booziest day on the Jewish calendar to explore great wines. We're not exaggerating when we say that joining us today is one of the foremost experts on wine in the entire country. Sandy Block is Vice President of Beverage Operations at Legal Seafood and oversees a complex and carefully curated wine program. As a former sommelier, Sandy was the first American on the East Coast of the United States to be certified as Master of Wine and is one of only 279 individuals in the entire world. He is a student and teacher, having developed the curriculum for the Accredited Wine Studies Program at Boston University and taught a wine tasting course to aspiring chefs at the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts. He has a ton of French titles, none of which we are confident enough to pronounce without some liquid courage. He has also become an expert on Israeli wines, having taken a 2018 work-drink-study tour of the country, sipping his way from the Galilee and the Golan to the Judean Hills and the Negev Desert. Sandy is here today to share his expertise so you can be ready for your Passover Seder, or frankly, any other meal. Sandy, thank you so much for being here on the Vibe of the Tribe today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. One of the first questions I always have when talking about kosher wine is the difference between kosher and kosher mevushal, which I remember we talked about a couple years ago at Israel 360. I've always wanted to know, can an expert taste the difference? Because I know people who will swear that they can't drink a mevushal wine because it tastes different or awful to them. It's a it's a complicated question. I've never been at a blind tasting with Mouvushal wines and non-Mouvushal wines, so I can't really say. I know that there are producers who I respect that don't want to make their wine Mouvushal because they're afraid that the flash pasteurization will strip out some of the flavor and some of the aroma. But I've never been at a controlled experiment where we've tried um, tasting the wines blind, and I think that's the, that's the real test. So I, I would respectfully say that people have that opinion. It, they probably would have that opinion without having done the experiment themselves, but uh, I, I can't argue one way or the other. 
To be fair, these are some pretty opinionated people who I'm talking <laughs> to when they give that analysis. But And occasionally having a little glass of wine will make you even more opinionated. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so what makes a wine kosher for Passover? So let's start with kosher first. So production process, once the grapes are crushed, has to be only handled by Sabbath-observant Jews. In one case, there's a very famous winery in California whose winemaker was not Jewish. But what he did was he actually never touched the wine. He had assistants touch the wine because that will uh, make it lose its its kosher status. Muvushal has to do with flash pasteurization. Logically, it shouldn't really hurt the wine, but it, it's taken up to about 160 to 180 degrees for two to three seconds. There are some very famous non uh, kosher winemakers who pra- use that practice because they feel it has other benefits, but it is controversial. Kosher for Passover literally means that it has not, the wine hasn't come into contact with chametz. There's nothing else added to it that is not, that, that is not kosher. For example, any wine, any good quality wine uh, made with vinifera grapes, which is what we generally drink, I'm going to leave, leave aside the traditional kosher wines from uh, Manischewitz or uh, Mogan David, but any of the varietal, let's say, wines, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, these wines do not come into contact with any comments. So if it's kosher, it's automatically kosher for Passover. However, wines that I just mentioned earlier, the uh, Mogan David, Ma- Manischewitz, the traditional kosher wines from uh, the northeastern part of the United States. These are made with another grape, another species of grape variety called Labrusca. They usually do have high fructose corn syrup added to them. To make them kosher for Passover, that comments has to be eliminated and they have to use other, uh, other ways of balancing the wine. Is that clear? It is, yeah. Okay. And actually, it's it's quite shocking to hear that there are some quality wines that use high fructose corn syrup, or probably not quality wines, but technically wines. Yeah, I mean... The, the <laughs> it whole says sto- wine on the bottle. Right. The whole story of how kosher came to be associated with these sweet wines is essentially has to do with the vast majority of U.S. immigration of Jews in the, 18, in the 19th and early 20th century came from Eastern Europe to New York and, and Boston and places on the East Coast where it wasn't, um, the vinifera grape varieties weren't uh, prevalent. They are a little bit more so today, especially in New York State. And so they used the local grape varieties. This was not, a, not about drinking wine for aesthetic purposes. It was, it was for a kiddish. So they used what they had. The household I grew up in, there was no alcohol, and a lot of my, a lot of the people in the in the part of Brooklyn that I'm from didn't drink alcohol except in these occasions, and uh, you know, uh, for for sanctification. Right. The kosher wines were there was sweet sweet wines are easier to take than than dry wines if you have no experience with wine. I can attest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest that I'm a terrible person at drinking, so I do not have a refined palate. That's fine. It's not a powerful, good skill. It's a skill, but I mean, it's not one you need. You can always develop that palate. I, I teach courses at Boston University. We'd love to have you there. And okay. we got to do some professional development here. My take on wine is very simple. If you like it, it's good. So there is, people do get kind of freaked out by, oh, is this a good wine? The test is the same as for food. If you enjoy it, it's good. These Concord grapes are, you know, I would say not what uh, the 
the average wine drinker would would find palatable. But uh, there's an, also an emotional attachment. People mm-hmm. get a feeling from something that reminds them of uh, an important occasion in their lives. And if you grew up, you know, drinking uh, the four cups and they were uh, they were they were Manischewitz, then you know nobody should tell you that you shouldn't do that. The flavor of nostalgia. Exactly. I mean, there's and and you know what. There's a strong connection between what we like in wine and our experience, personal experiences anyway. Uh, other people who haven't had those experiences don't feel the same connection. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I would give you permission to enjoy whatever you like. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but in your, in your own opinion, what are, are there great Passover wines? Yes. There are great kosher wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I've, I've written about them. I've, I, I drink them. Um, occasionally. I, I can't say that I've ever had a positive experience since I've gotten it started studying wine and tasting a lot of wine with any of the Concord or, or uh, non-vinifera uh, kosher wines, but there are wonderful kosher wines, absolutely. And it's, it's, um, I'm most familiar, believe it or not, with the kosher wines from Israel, mm-hmm. uh, but not, it's also not every Israeli wine is kosher. And not every Israeli wine that is kosher is Mavushal. So it's, it's a complicated category. I mean, even we yeah. can't even figure it out, so <laughs> much less the rest of the world. Are there some liquor stores out there that will help you with you know, putting it all in one place? You can at least see the variety that's out there or the lack thereof? Yeah, of course. Um, depends on how widely you want to cast the net. There, uh, you know, the, the, I would say locally in the Boston area, probably the one that is the most... Uh, proficient that has the largest collection of kosher wines is the butchery in Brookline. Mm. Oh, that would make sense. Um, yeah. When I used to be in the wholesale business, we sold kosher wines. And uh, I remember once the representative from the importer was saying that the butchery um, was by far the largest kosher account in, in, um, in Massachusetts, but also pointed out that there were individual stores in New York City that would sell more wine than the entire Massachusetts market. So it's all relative. Jeez, we always get that from New York, <laughs> don't we? I, I want to uh, move on to sort of the, the meat of our conversation. Yeah. And this is a pun that I'm making. Okay. Uh, the traditional Ashkenazi Eastern European branch of the Jewish people, of which I am a member, brings to the table some salty brown tan and beige food, the mystery meat of the sea, gefilte fish. <laughs> Uh, matzo ball soup, brisket, chicken, that kind of thing. And then you've got some sweet stuff at the table, haroset, kugel, macaroons. How significant of a challenge is it to find the right wine, uh, one for ritual purposes and two for drinking purposes? You know, there's so much variety. In general, these are hearty foods that you're talking about. My method of matching wine and food is you have a light dish, you have a light wine. You have a rich, intense flavorful, chewy dish, you need something fuller bodied and medium and medium. So there are plenty of uh, wines. One of the things that, that, that impressed me most on uh, touring the Israeli wine industry was how much great Syrah there is. And Syrah is a grape variety that is completely out of fashion today for reasons that have nothing to do with Israel, kosher, or anything else. It's just out of fashion. But but the, a lot of the microclimates in Israel, particularly in the north and the higher elevations, are wonderful for Syrah. Also for Petit Syrah, also for Petit Verdot. So these are big, hearty, powerful, dense, 
flavorful red wines that go great with something like brisket. Gefilte fish, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave off the table because I've never been able to Good stomach plan. it myself. <laughs> Thank Wise. you. I, I'm of the same background you are, Daniel. But uh, it's never it was not something that I ever really liked. You know, but, the same reason that people will drink manischewitz one time a year is the same reason that I will eat gefilte fish. Okay. It, it makes my mother happy because it made her mother happy and it made her mother happy. This is a uh, tradition. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't a big thing in my household, and, and so I always shied away from it. Let's just not try to pair it with anything. Is gonna, that what you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> Let's just leave, exactly. It, leave it off the table, as it were. Some of the uh, sweet flavors that you're talking about, uh, one of the ones that I'm very impressed by is uh, actually the one of the oldest wineries in Israel, Carmel, Caramel, God's mm-hmm. Vineyard. And uh, this was developed in, goes back to the uh, 1880s when Baron Rothschild uh, was part of a movement to reset all the Jews of Eastern Europe back on the land and move them to, uh, to Israel. And um, and so it's, it's a very, has a long history. This was... Uh, this was a place where Israel's first telephone was. Um, it was, uh, you know, it, it was a special winery. They made kind of standard wines until fairly recently, the last couple of decades, and there's been so much change. But they have a Riesling that I think is world class. Um, it's from a vin- vineyard called the Kayumi Vineyard, and this Carmel Riesling goes really. It's from up in the Galilee. It goes really, really well with, you know, as you were saying, Horo uh, said. I don't, I don't know about Maror. You you know, that's that's kind of hard because that that's so fiery. Well, it's also not supposed to taste good. Yeah, it's not supposed to taste good. <laughs> yeah, but you got to wash it down with something, right? right? You're supposed to drink a lot of wine, but so forget water. But you're supposed to suffer the over the maror. You can pretend that you're crying, but uh, <laughs> if you had if you had some of this riesling with it, it actually would calm down some of the heat. And there's so many varieties of Jewish food beyond just Eastern European mm. Ashkenazi fare. There's Mizrahi food of the mm-hmm. Middle East, um, and Sephardi foods of Spain and the Mediterranean, for example. And those cuisines are very different. Um, what would you th- recommend for that kind of cuisine that has a lot more salad, fresh ingredients, fish, even curry, just totally um, different flavors and and uh, dishes? Yeah, so somewhat lighter than the traditional Ashkenazi fare that we're talking about. So lighter wines. Mm-hmm. Riesling, there, there's not a lot of great Sauvignon Blanc in Israel that I tasted anyway. There's actually recently... A gentleman named Iran Pick became the first Israeli master of wine. Mm-hmm. So that's the organization that I'm um, right. a member of. His, his winery is called Sora, T-Z-O-R-A. And that was the best Sauvignon Blanc I tasted in Israel. Um, so that would go nicely with these uh, these other cuisines. Mm-hmm. Lighter, fresher white wines, uh, I think, are more more appropriate. If we want to go to California, the Baron Herzog, Chenin Blanc, a little bit of residual sugar kind of cools down some of the spicy elements and yeah. these Middle Eastern cuisines would be good. Given the progression of a Seder, is there a sequence you'd recommend with wine if you have a bunch of different varieties there at the table? Sure. Anyone that's attended one of my Seders uh, could probably answer this question as best as I do. But uh, what I what I generally do is I start with the lighter, more delicate wines and then uh, go build up in intensity and then finish off with some big powerhouse wines. So, you know, one way you could look at it is start off with a Riesling, go to a Chardonnay or a Sauvignon Blanc, then go to a, um, a medium textured red like a Merlot 
and then finish off with a Syrah or a Cabernet Sauvignon or blend. So it does track with the Exodus story. <laughs> it's going to track with the Haggadah. Basically, once we get to the 10 plagues, you're going big with the wine. Exactly. You need, you need something to uh, calm you down. with. <laughs> so every Seder ends with Jews around the world saying next year in Jerusalem, obviously, unless you're in Jerusalem. Let's say we really want to bring some Jerusalem back home to our temporary American lives and drink a wine from the Judean hills. Yeah. What are some decent uh, or excellent Israeli kosher for Pesach wines that you would recommend? Well, one of my favorite Israeli wines is from a producer in the Judean Hills named Castel. He started making, he, he was a big fan of French wines. He started making a Chardonnay that was barrel fermented and, uh, you know, it comes from these mountain vineyards, barrel fermented, very dry, very rich, and very toasty. A couple of decades ago, that's, that's one of the best, I think. Um, Castel C. Chardonnay. And he also has some big, powerful red wines that are more modeled on Bordeaux. Mm. So I I would say Castel would be one of my favorites. There are are others that are very good as well. One of my favorite regions really is is the Golan. And if there's one overall winery, I know it's, it's a little bit further away from Jerusalem, but if there's one overall winery that I would say you can't go wrong, it's a winery called Yardin. Mm. You know, the, the, the microclimate up there, very windy, very cool. You're really within sight of the Syrian border, uh, the Lebanese border, uh, and the Syrian border even closer. Uh, so it's kind of windswept. It's pretty uh, desolate land that, you know, in terms of agriculture. But grapevines are very unusual. They actually grow better in places where the soils are not good, not fertile. So... The original uh, places where they were planted were all places that didn't have a lot of um, a lot of potential to grow other food crops, and so a place like the Golan Heights is is ideal for grapevines, and not probably for many other agricultural products. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So on a related note, while we're talking about geography, let's say you are wandering in the desert mm. for, <laughs> <laughs> for any number of years, days, weeks, hours, and you're in the Negev. Are there any good desert wines, not dessert wines, desert <laughs> wines coming out of Israel? Well, as we all know, Israel is the one country, or maybe we don't all know, the one country in the world where there are more trees planted today than there were 100 years ago. So they're slowly pushing back the desert. Uh, but in the area around Tel Arad, which is a very famous uh, uh, biblical and historical site, there is a winery called Yatir, and they call it Yatir Forest, it's technically in the Negev, and they make spectacular wines. Probably the greatest um, Israeli uh, or kosher wine I've ever had was uh, called Yatir Forest. Uh, it's a big powerhouse red wine, not inexpensive, you know, close uh, upwards of close to $100 a bottle, actually, but world class. And so, uh, you know, it's not a thirst quencher, right. so I don't know. But I don't you know have to really like your friends and your Seder guests yeah. to bust out the $100 a bottle wine. Yeah, this is an, I've had a tough day. Let me have a glass of wine, you know. But it would be beautiful with, uh, we actually do, um, we do a vegan Seder because my wife and one of my sons are vegan. So uh, I've served that towards the end with, uh, I don't even know what the concoction is, but, you know, something really hearty, and it, and it goes beautifully. What do you use on your Seder plate for things like uh, the egg, the shank bone? Yeah. What do you swap them out for? So 
my wife's unusual in that she's vegan and one of my sons is, but sometimes she'll, you know, I mean, she'll cook for others that, that aren't, so it becomes complicated. But uh, last, the last two years, it was a, uh, it was a plastic uh, <laughs> shank bone. <laughs> you know, it was like a toy. Yeah, just, purely symbolic. Just symbolic, yeah. exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no one actually gnaws on that shank bone after, <laughs> no. during or after the Seder anyway, no, right? No, not to my knowledge. That is not a custom I'm familiar with, You though. get to keep one's hands clean and not have to deal with it, which is good. Right. There you go. Uh, so I wanted to get some tips from you, since we have a professional in the room, mm-hmm. uh, how to find some solid Passover wines at a variety of price levels. We know that we can find a good one for 100 Passover wines for enthusiasts on a budget. And then maybe some break-the-bank wines, which you just mentioned, if you want to party like it's fifty-seven seventy-nine, <laughs> And then maybe also uh, some suggestions of where people can find them. I know you mentioned the butchery, but if there are other places as well, that would be very helpful. Yeah, let me start with the last question. Um, I think pretty much any solid, decent wine store today has got a selection of Kosher wines. One of the major one of the major efforts on the people that commercialize that sell kosher wine, and Israeli wine, is to take it out of the quote unquote ghettoized area. Oh, these are the kosher wines over here, and kind of integrate them into the store. So today, with some of the changes that have occurred in the uh, in the wine business, um, I think most stores have people on the floor who are capable of of, of showing their uh, customers a, a variety of things, and I think most. Most stores do carry some kosher wine. So I'm not 100% familiar with the retail market, so I, I couldn't. I mean, I, I hear great things about Gordon's, who has three or four stores. I think any good wine store, you know, they understand that, that these are high-quality wines today, and, and uh, they're offering them for their clientele, whether, whether their clientele is Jewish or they aren't. To go back to what, what what I recommend in terms of various brands that are that are good quality in a variety of price ranges, uh, particularly from Israel, I would say let me start actually from California. There's a there's a winery called Covenant that makes outstanding um, kosher wine, um, mid priced, uh, not not super expensive. Carmel, which I mentioned earlier for their reasoning, I think you have to pick and choose among their their wines, but they have some outstanding wines that are that are not very expensive. I mentioned earlier the uh, Golan Heights. There is a winery up there called Galil, G-A-L-I-L, that makes very good, sound, you know, moderate, medium price wines. Moving up a little bit in the scale in terms of price, there is a fantastic winery called Sagot in the area around Jerusalem, medium price. They, they have a wine called their Edom, E-D-O-M, which is a Bordeaux blend of Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, delicious. There's one winery that I get very enthusiastic about. I've actually hosted their winemaker, David Barilan, at uh, two different wine dinners that we did at Legal Seafoods. It's called Tulip. Oh, you brought that to the Israel right. 360 event. It was fantastic. That's right, yes. So they make great, great wine. They, they, they have a white that's moderately priced called White Tulip, which is a blend of Gewurztraminer and Sauvignon Blanc, I think. Their Black Tulip is phenomenal. That, that's very expensive. And the one that we carry at Legal is the uh, Syrah Reserve. So they're based, uh, based on a um, Moshav called uh, Kafar Tikva, Village of Hope. And every resident of Kfar Tikva and every employee other than the winemaker at Tulip 
is a developmentally challenged adult. So they're the ones that do the work. And, and that's not, it's a, it's a great story. That's not the reason why I love the wines. But uh, it's sort of an added enjoyment of the wines, knowing that these people who, you know, weren't previously able to work have all been, you know, participating in this and feel a sense of, uh, of, of purpose in, in the winery. So I highly recommend everything I've ever had from Tulip, but the white Tulip, the black Tulip, and the Syrah, and the Cabernet. For those that want something of really interesting quality that kind of go back to your earlier uh, comment, Miriam, about, you know, liking that that slightly sweet flavor. Mm -hmm. There is a passion fruit wine called Morad, M-O-R-A-D, that is really fully sweet, would give you the... uh, we give you the uh, same kick that you get from uh, from one of the traditional wines, but uh, I think is great as a dessert wine. So that sometimes at the end of the seder, I'll serve that as well. You know, it depends on what we have afterwards. So yeah, those are my those are my highlights. And um, Baron Herzog, which is the big um, winery in California, uh, they they have some very good wines. I mentioned their their Chenin Blanc earlier. Uh, their Reserve Cabernet is, is is very good as well. So there's a lot to choose from. All right, and there's much more than the Manischewitz. Much more than the Manischewitz. And, and if you like Manischewitz, go for it. <laughs> yeah, don't, we, we have don't some f- on a shelf in the Jewish Boston office. It's been <laughs> okay. sitting there for Mostly maybe decorative, four or five years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't, don't be intimidated by wine snobs who tell you you shouldn't drink it. <laughs> thank you. That's good. <laughs> well, Sandy, thank you so much for speaking with us today on the podcast. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, and uh, have a happy Pesach. Same to you. Listeners, to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast, subscribe. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can follow at Jewish Boston on social media for all of our great content. Thanks, as always, to our editor and mascot, Jesse, and to Ryan for our music. Please pass over responsibly, everyone, and next year in Jerusalem. He is also, uh, wow, there are too many words. Shalom and welcome to this mistake. <laughs> Hold on, I just gotta have some more. Cut that, move it to the end, Jesse. You got it. <laughs> uh, did we do it? I, I think. think. Uh, but what about for some Passover wine enthusi- enthusiasts? Oh, I'm sorry. Jesse, my apologies. Dan, talk into the mic, please. Yes, talking into the paper. We're gonna. Okay, I can stop recording now. Please.